Well, you know, one of the most amazing experiences of being a father was when my daughter, Brooke, uttered her first words. Every parent, they, they wait for that moment with such great anticipation, so much so that moms and dads will literally coach their kids <laughs> for hours. They want to make sure that the first word that is spoken is mama or dada, depending on who, of course, is doing the coaching. That always seemed a little bit silly to me, and because of that, I've never really made a big deal out of the fact that Brooke said dada before mama, but I'm just saying. But soon after a child learns dada or mama, the next big word that they, they uh, learn is, they, thank you, get out of my notes, who said that? No. The child development experts tell us that it's a very important word, this word no. They say that it helps a child to establish boundaries and as assert their, their own sense of identity and autonomy. Psychologists say that this no stage is a good stage, but I am certain most of the psychologists who have said that have never raised a child on their own. <laughs> but then, like death and taxes, it always happens. Your beautiful, perfect little baby girl or little boy, baby boy picks up another word, and they use it whenever someone else wants to play with one of their toys or when someone wants to wear a piece of their clothing, or when someone might want to taste a bite of their food. They say a word, and it becomes their favorite new word, and it's the word, of course, is mine. <laughs> and what happens is these wretched little pint-sized sinners now start speaking words like, <laughs> like, my toy, my room, my food, my stuff. It's mine, it's all mine. Maybe I ought to go on the road with this stuff. They're going to get a lot of laughs here. Maybe the comedy circuit is calling my name. I don't know. This is good stuff, isn't it? Sadly, here's the turning point, folks. Sadly, some of us never outgrow that word. And people will go to their grave speaking that word. Oh, they might not say it out loud anymore, but it marks them. It's on their wallet. It's on their checkbook. It's on their house. It's on their time. It's on their resources. It's on their very life. It's all mine. That's an unfortunate fact about us human beings, isn't it? But there is a reality that we will all face one day, ladies and gentlemen. The day will come when you will say one of two words to God from the core of your very being. Either you're going to say, God, it's all yours. Everything I have, everything I own, everything I am is yours, or you will say mine. God, I, I give you nothing, and I do not submit my life to you. And the result of those words is gonna bring about another grave human reality, heaven or hell. God will either say with great joy, I receive your gift and your life, I receive it as a gift, or he will say with deep sadness and brokenness in his heart, I will allow you to be separate from me for all of eternity. Well, today as we continue in our series, Chasing God's Heart, where we are looking at the life of David and his heart for God, David is saying these words. He's saying, it's all yours, God. 
Today we're gonna to talk about a generous heart because David certainly was generous in every sense of the word. We know that there were times in David's life when he messed up and we're gonna be talking about a big one next week. But I can tell you one thing that David got right. He had a generous heart. He loved to give, he loved to share. And I think that it's so important that we talk about this, this topic of generosity because I think many Christians, they get distracted in this area of their Christian walk. I think a lot of people, both inside and outside the church walls, get conflicted. They wonder if what the Bible says about possessions and materialism means that you're supposed to give away everything that you have, or should they feel guilty about owning or enjoying anything? There's a lot of confusion. And so therefore, I think it's important for us to talk about it. Because you certainly have the hermit option. You can choose to live life like a hermit, but few people choose to do that. But I think a more common option we take is people just kind of give up. They simply just kind of drift and apply society's standards regarding their, their material possessions. And my personal opinion is when the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, do not be conformed to this world, it has a whole lot of applications to it. And in our day, an area where Christians get conformed to the world's mold is in this area of material possessions and their stewardship over their material possessions. And that's not God's plan either. So I believe that David has something to show all of us this morning. You see, David did not live like a hermit, nor was he called on by God to do so. David was entrusted with a huge amount of material possessions. And he wasn't God, called by God to give all of that stuff away either. But somehow, throughout his life, he developed the most generous heart that I have found in all the scriptures. So David can literally be a model for you and I to help us to answer this very important question. What does a generous heart really look like? How do I know if I am growing as a believer in Christ in this area of stewardship over everything that God has blessed me with? What does an authentic, Christ-honoring, generous heart look like? So today, with David being our example, I want to look at three facets of a generous heart. And we're going to walk through a number of scriptures this morning, but I'd like you to first turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the pew pocket in front of you, or you can simply follow along because all the scriptures will be up on the screens to my left and right. Or better yet, just ask the person next to you if you could, if you could share their Bible with them. Let's see how generous they are this morning. The first facet of a generous heart is a generous heart focuses on the needs of others. One way you know if you're developing a generous heart is you'll find yourself moved by the needs of others like you would be moved by your own. And here's a classic example I wanna share with you of David doing just that. If you'll remember last week, we talked about this little community that they created, this refugee village, if you will, called Ziklag. It was filled with people that the Bible describes as that, of people who were in debt or in distress or discontented. And how they, while they were away raiding the Philistines, a group of Amalekites came 
and they burned that little village down. They carried off their wives and their children, all of their possessions, and now the men were so upset about this that they were going to stone David over what happened. But David sought the Lord, and he prayed, and God told him to go after the Amalekites who have taken away your village. So here's what happened. They'd come back from this long campaign against the Philistines. They were fatigued, and furthermore, they were demoralized by the loss of their village. But David rallies his troops on a forced march southward. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 9 and 10, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, says, So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besser. They pushed real hard for about 15 miles or so, but the thought of their village and their families being gone was such a devastating thought to them that it just drained them of, their, of any energy and emotion that they had. So about a third of the men, they say, we can't take another step. We are physically exhausted. We are emotionally ruined over what has happened to our families. We just can't go any further. Put a fork in us. We're done. So David has them stay back with the supplies. And I want you to remember these men because we're going to come back to them in just just a little bit later. But as you read on, David and his men stumble on a man in the, uh, an Egyptian man in the desert, and he was starving, and he was exhausted, and he had been left there by his master for three days and three nights without any water or without any food. He was left there to die in the middle of that desert. And David says to him, what's mine is yours. And he gives him water, and he gives him some trail mix or something to sustain his strength. And lo and behold, this man turns out to be a servant of one of the Amalekites who had just wiped out Ziklag, David's village. And amazing how God works. And David says to this Egyptian, the Amalekites have taken our families. Will you lead us to them? Well, this man has been left there to die by the Amalekites while David has just saved his life. So, of course, he's more than happy to help out. Go down to verse 16 and 17. And when he had brought him down, they were there spread out over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all of the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Down to verse 19. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. So they they got back their families. They got back their livestock and everything that had been taken. And it sounds like the end of a wonderful story, doesn't it? But it's not, because you remember those 200 guys who stayed behind? Verse 21 says this. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besser. 
So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. I want you to imagine their response when they see David coming back with their wives and their children and all of their possessions, down to verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may be led away and depart. Here's what these men that verse 22 describes as wicked and worthless are saying. They're saying it's not fair. We did all the work. These slackers just stayed behind. They're a bunch of bums, and if they get their portion, then we're gonna receive less. So we're keeping the plunder for ourselves. They look at the 200 men who were both physically and emotionally exhausted, men who had nothing to give and who stayed behind with the supplies, and they see a bunch of undeserving parasites who will severely cut into their profits, and their attitude is no way. This ain't gonna happen. And you know, when you think about it, that's exactly the mindset of the world in which we live. Generally, when we see people in need, Many believe that giving to them would threaten their own fulfillment, their own security, because we live in a world that that says the secret to fulfillment and security is more stuff, and giving to other people means less stuff that comes into our household. Verse 23, but David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. I love David's courage here, down to verse 24 and 25. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. What I want you to notice in this text is the connection between David's gratitude for God and David's desire to be generous. He says to the 400 men who fought, you're thinking all wrong about this stuff. Remember, we were all a bunch of, uh, we were a group of discontented, indebted fugitives, and now we have all this stuff, but we only have all this stuff because God was gracious and generous enough to give it to us in the first place, so how can we not be gracious and generous with one another? Here's the point. When David has a financial decision to make, he begins to always think about how gracious and generous God has been to him, and then he asks, how can I be like that? And I'll tell you, anytime you face a financial decision, if you start by thinking about how gracious and how generous God has been to you, it's really not difficult to be gracious and generous to other people. That's what a generous heart does. But our world doesn't see it or work it that way. There was a Harvard economist named James Dusenberry. I don't know if you've ever heard his name. He's the guy who wrote the classic discussion about what drives America's financial behavior. He's the same guy who coined the phrase we've all heard, keeping up with the Joneses. 
you know, that the idea is if the Joneses have it, then I got to have it. My neighbor's got it. I got to get it myself. It's interesting just how powerful this drive to, to obtain stuff is to the human spirit. So we do uh, crazy things and we apply poor stewardship over our financial management and we kill ourselves to obtain stuff. We work jobs that we, we don't even like to make money to buy things we don't even need to impress people who don't really care. It's as simple as that. And the problem is that it's impossible when you get into that game to keep up because the game never ends. And what happens is the Joneses go out and they refinance their home and they take out a boatload of equity and they start buying more toys from the equity that they just stole from their home. And so then what do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You refuse to play that game anymore because it's a losing proposition. Sometimes you just need to declare the Joneses as the winner. It's okay to do that. Because that translates into ultimately you being the winner. You win the house game. You win the bank account game. You win the car game. You're the winner overall. So please quit comparing what you have or don't have to what other people have or don't have. Refuse to acquire any more stuff based on what the neighbors have or what your coworkers have or, or what you see bombarded, bombarding you on TV and radio every day. Begin to practice gratitude for the, the things that you do have and you will then be motivated by the needs of others. And you'll be driven by that motivation rather than driven by your own personal discontent. The truth is, folks, we, we need to get a really firm grasp, understanding the difference between needs and wants. Because in our culture, those lines have been tremendously blurred. You see, there's a very smart group of people working on Madison Avenue who work very hard to try to make us think that our wants are really our needs. And in case you've lost, and lost perspective over this very important truth, needs are what you require to survive. Food, clothing, and shelter. While everything else is a want. So one of the ways you can know if you have a generous heart is you'll find yourself increasingly motivated by the needs of others. And we clearly see this within the life of David. But here's the second facet of a generous heart. Generous hearts look for opportunities to give. They're proactive. They're intentional about it. One of the ways that you can know if you're displaying a generous heart is you start looking for opportunities to give, not just opportunities to acquire. And there's a second story that I want to share with you found in 2 Samuel chapter 24. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. Again, they'll be up on the screen. You can follow along. There's been a very destructive plague going on in Israel, and God stretches forth his hand to stop the destruction, and Jerusalem is saved. 2 Samuel 24, verse 18 through 23 says this, and Gad came that day to David and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arona, 
looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arona has given to the king. And Arona said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. And I love this next verse, verse 24. Then the king, David, said to Arona, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David brought the, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. I love this story. On the surface, it doesn't seem to make a lot of financial sense. Arona is offering David everything that he needs, and every bit of what he needs is going to end up as an offering to God anyway, right? So what is the difference? Who pays for it? Well, David essentially is saying, the things that I give to God will not come from my heart in the same way they would have if I had paid for it, if I had earned it, if I had, had worked for it, or something that cost me nothing versus something that cost me nothing. You see, when you give of your possessions, of your financial resources, that I believe we can all agree are blessings from God and what the Bible says that you've earned also by the sweat of your brow, simply put, you're giving a little bit of yourself away. You are. It's not just the resources. You're giving a piece of yourself when you give it away. And guess what? That changes your heart. It helps us, it helps us to loosen our death grip on all of our stuff. And it helps us to develop a deeper devotion to God. And, and again, understand that this runs in the face of our culture because our world is obsessed with opportunities to acquire. Let me give you a little challenge this week. Take note of all the ads that you see. And let me tell you, these ad agencies are so good at what they do. There is so much psychology built into commercials today. They know how we're wired. They know what trips our senses. They're very good. Madison Avenue, that's why these guys are gazillionaires, because they sell a lot of product. They, they continually bombard you with tempting opportunities to require stuff. And it's all this stuff that our culture believes will satisfy our soul. But I think we've all lived long enough to know that that just isn't true. I once saw an ad for Crate and Barrel. It was a picture of a beautiful sofa, and the caption underneath of it said, that's not tribal drums you're hearing, it's your heart. <laughs> some, some lady who needed a new sofa said, I can relate to that, and they probably sold a billion of those sofas. Then I saw an ad for BMW, and I'm not, if you got a BMW, this is nothing against you. God, be glad you can afford a BMW. Again, there's a beautiful car in this picture, and I love it. It said, you can't buy happiness, 
but now you can lease it. <laughs> you know, I can't afford to get the down payment on this, and the payment's going to be too high, but if I lease it, I can give a smaller down payment and have a smaller payment, but when the lease is done, I have nothing. This is how we, we, we justify it, and they know that. And they know if you want a BMW bad enough, you're going to lease it. We live in a world that is obsessed with opportunities to acquire stuff. That no doubt, all of it is very, very nice stuff. But so much of it is stuff that we don't need at all. But the sign of a generous heart is that you begin to look for opportunities to give. Here's the deal. When you give, you set into motion a spiritual dynamic that cannot be held back. Good things start to happen. They happen in the heart of the person who gives. They happen in the heart of the one who receives what you've given. It also happens in the hearts of the people who are watching all of this thing unfold. You can't give without setting this kind of a, of a spiritual dynamic into motion. Th that's why the Bible says in Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. And let me make something perfectly clear to you. I'm never going to be the guy who is going to stand up here and tell you that you're going to receive a tenfold on anything that you give to someone in need or to the work of the Lord. That is an irresponsible thing for any guy on television ministry to say, and I know you've all heard it before, God's going to give you a tenfold return or a hundredfold return. That, that's, that's garbage. There is no formula that assures you anything. And the truth is, we don't give to receive something in return. But having said that, there's no denying that that's exactly what happens. There is a tremendous blessing that comes to you that God does give back to you in a variety of ways. And I know this because I've experienced it in my own life. And the only way you'll ever experience this spiritual dynamic in your life is by being generous. It's a divine act. It's always a little miracle when somebody decides to give. And that is at the core of who God is. It's what God does. He gives. He gave his only son. That's a big thing to give, wouldn't you say? It was much greater than any other possession or resource that we might consider giving. So it's very simple. In response for what God has generously given to us, we in turn generously give back. It's a process that you can't afford not to be a part of. So number one, a generous heart becomes increasingly motivated by the needs of others. Number two, a generous heart increasingly seeks opportunities to give. And the third facet, of a generous heart, generous hearts increasingly experience joy in giving. A person with a generous heart is filled with gladness more and more and more as they continue to give. That's one of the ways you can tell that you're developing generosity is that you love to give. And our final example of David's generous heart is found in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. David is leading the people in giving gifts towards the building of the temple in Jerusalem. He wants to build a house of worship for God, for a gathering place of God's people. 
David initially wanted to build this temple himself, but God said, David, no, you, you've, got, you've been involved in too much bloodshed and too much violence. So David decides if he can't build it, then he's going to kick off the campaign to start giving to it. He says in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 2 and 3, Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, and wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. In other words, David was not simply giving just from the state coffers. He was giving from his own personal wealth. He just goes through this long, extravagant list of giving, and it fills him with joy to be able to give like that. Then it becomes contagious. And at the end of verse 5, he says, Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? In other words, he's asking, Who will give as I have set the example? Look at verse 6. This is one of the greatest pictures in all of the scriptures of the joy of giving and how it infected the entire community. Verse 6 says, Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered willingly. They gave willingly. You read this account, and you will see how often that phrase comes up. Verse 19, verse 14, verse 16. Over and over, you see, they had offered willingly to the Lord. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the way that God wants us to give. He wants us to give willingly and out of the abundance of our heart. You see, David and his people, they faced this massive project of building this temple, something on a level that they have never, ever come close to trying to achieve. And I want you to notice David's perspective here. He says, everything comes from you anyway, God. The things we give to you come from your hand in the first place. All this abundance is just stuff that you've given us to be stewards over. Allow me to rephrase that. It's not my stuff, God. It's your stuff. We have this illusion in our world that it's my stuff. It's just like the little children when they say, it's mine. And unfortunately, as I said, many people never get away from that selfish mindset. But please understand, nothing is really ours. It all came from God. It was made by God. It belongs to God, and it's going to go back to God. You can play with it for a little while, but then somebody else gets to play with it after you're gone for a while. It is not your stuff because none of it goes with you. You leave this world just like you arrive with absolutely no material possessions. So forget, if you forget everything that I've spoken this morning, please remember these words. It's not my stuff. It's not. When you go home today and... Or as you're leaving here today and you go out to your car, I want you to look at it and with great passion, I want you to say, it's not my stuff. And when you go home and to your apartment or your home and you unlock the door and you survey what's inside, I want you to enthusiastically say, it's not my stuff. 
Today, when you pull out your wallet or your checkbook, instead of saying to yourself like you usually do, there's not enough there, why don't you say with great passion, it's not my stuff. Now, if the IRS calls you and says they want to audit you, please don't say it's not my stuff because you might have some explaining to do. But David is very clear about this perspective. It's not my stuff. That's what generous hearts do. They realize it's not their stuff in the first place. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, the paradox is that we are afraid to give generously because we think that having more stuff is ultimately the secret to our overall happiness or buying a tricked out truck or having a remodel and getting the state of the art kitchen. That's the secret to happiness, but it never is. And what we're seeing as the primary hallmark throughout this story is there's a great scene of joy. And if you think it was joyful for them, can you imagine how joyful it was for God looking down and seeing what was going on? First, you find David giving generously, and when the leaders see David give, they give, and when the people see the leaders are giving, they're filled with generosity, and they give, and that spiritual dynamic that I spoke of earlier is being set into motion. And you know, some very smart people did some calculations on exactly what was given to build that temple. Scholars have calculated how much gold alone was needed to meet the specifications as presented in the book of Exodus. You should read the specifications of the temple, the details and the gold and the silver and the gems and all of the things that were spelled out. Man, you talk about a place of worship. I can't even fathom what that place must have looked like. But what they gave in gold alone was staggering. They came up with 1,086 talents of gold which is equal to, get this, 34 tons of gold. And that constituted about half of all the known gold supply in the ancient world at that time. Now, I did some calculating on my own. And on Thursday, the, gold, the closing gold price was about $1,966 an ounce. Today, that 34 tons of gold would be valued, and get this, $2,142,000,000,000. Now I realize, I mean, wasn't even 15 years ago, gold was selling for $300 a, a, a gram, three, or $300 an ounce, 350, but it's quadrupled over the last 15 years. That is a staggering amount of gold and, 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 and people's personal finances that they were holding on to, that they took on this attitude, it's yours, God. It's not mine. David led in giving to something on a level that they, we have never seen before and we will probably never, ever see again in history. Here's what this means to us today, folks. David served God and his generation, but now is our day. Now is our time. Just think about what would happen if that scene that took place in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 would be repeated in 2023 through Christians within churches all over America. 
What if the reality of it's not our stuff, it all belongs to God, came as powerfully on the church in America as it did on them? What if the spirit of contagious, willing, joy-filled generosity moved as powerfully in our midst as it did in the people of that day? I shudder to think of all of the possibilities of what the modern day church could accomplish for Jesus Christ in this nation and in the world if we were all generous with what we had. David had this dream to build a temple for God, but God said no. He could have just withdrawn and he could have sulked back and pouted the rest of his life, but he doesn't do that. He gives and he gives and he rejoices over other people giving to this project. And by the way, this is a project that David's eyes will never even see. It was built after he was gone. David cared for future generations. And I cannot help when I say that, but think of the many senior members of this church who understood this same principle. They gave and they built this incredible facility that we now have the privilege of of worshiping in. It was costly for them. They sacrificed for this. And because of their generous hearts, we have this beautiful place that we call a church home. And now we all benefit from their generosity because they understood something that we all need to understand. The people of God will continue to go on far beyond our generation should the good Lord tarry. I can't help but think of our kingdom builders here at High Point who not only give of their tithe, but they also give $100 a month, $1,200 a year. And that generosity allows us to take care of a lot of things that would be very difficult for us to meet on our normal operating budget. Our kingdom builders, they understand that this church and its work will go on long after I am gone and many of you are gone. And you must understand, we have a goal here to create a church that will be stronger for the next generation than it is ours. To turn over a vital relevant, spiritually strong, and yes, one day, debt-free church to the next generation. And this is all the more reason for us to be generous in our giving, ladies and gentlemen, to assure that this work continues in a world that so desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Nick, will you come forward and help me to close this down? You see, a generous heart developed within all of us individually and joined together with an entire congregation like High Point Assembly, it's all about leaving a legacy. It really is. To our children, like the song said, to to my children and your children and their children and their children. That should be our heart's cry. God, help us to be a generous people. And God, begin with me. Help us to leave a legacy that will forever mark us as people with generous hearts. Let us develop a community here of believers who have learned to say, God, it's yours. Everything I have, everything I am, it's all yours. And we, I believe, would all witness God doing something very supernatural in this place. And there's one other thing I must share with you about a generous heart. Generous hearted people are not only generous with their financial resources, but they are generous in other areas of their life as well. They are generous with their time, generous with their natural and their spiritual giftings. They are also generous in taking care of the needs of others as well. And Jesus was certainly the finest example we had of that, wasn't he? 
See, as followers of Christ, we have this incredible standard that is set before us. And it's really hard to measure up to that standard. And truthfully, we will never hit that standard this side of eternity. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't make an effort. Our effort should be to be like Christ in every aspect of our life. God wants this church to be filled with people who are generous in giving of their resources, giving of their time, of their talents, and of their giftings, so that the work of the Lord can be accomplished without hesitation, and I might also say with excellence. But having said that, I realize that a heart of generosity usually takes time to develop, because sometimes we can't bring ourselves to the point of fully trusting that God will take care of us when we do give. We can't seem to wrap our mind around the scripture that says, given it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We are all a work in progress. And we all need to have our faith stretched. And we need to have our faith tested. But for many, it's so hard to take this initial step in generosity. So in closing, we've already had a time at the altar, and I'm going to close by praying over you. And I, I, because I believe it is everybody's desire to have a generous heart. Even if you're not quite there yet, I think there's something built into us as followers of Christ where we want to be generous. We just have a hard time getting there. I want to pray that God would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our spirits to the things that he sees. When he sees them, he doesn't turn away. He sees them and he break, he's broken over them. And I think that's what God wants from us. And for us not to just see, but to take action as only a generous heart can do, to do something about the needs that we see. And that God would develop in all of us a, a heart of generosity. We all please stand to your feet. Listen, I know in a church this size, we're all over the place in terms of financial resources. Some have greater amount of resources than others, but we must take on the mindset of David and understand that what we do have is a gift from God. And that should motivate us to be able to say, it's all God's anyway, therefore I'm going to be willing to share a portion of it. See, generosity isn't at all about equal gifts because someone can give more than I can and I can give more than some of you can. It's all about equal sacrifice. It levels the playing field. It doesn't matter where you are in your financial scale. You make more, you give more. You make less, you give less. But the point is, we still give. We still are a generous people. Are we willing to sacrifice a portion of what God gives us by giving it back to further his kingdom through serving, through living, through loving, and through giving as Christ would have us to? Let's take this example that David has given us and become a people that truly have hearts that are generous. Before I pray, I just wanna say this was not a kind of a message that would perhaps lead to someone receiving salvation, but I don't like to close a service without giving people an opportunity to come to know Jesus. If you're here today and you just know who Jesus is, but you've never asked him into your life, you've never allowed him to have lordship 
While I pray over this congregation, you can pray a simple prayer. You just need to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, that he is the Son of God, that he came to this earth, and he died an excruciating death on the cross, and it was for you and me. It was personal. And the blood that he shed is the atoning agent. It, it, it is what clears us of our sin. And so you just acknowledge Jesus as Lord, the only way to God the Father. You ask him to forgive you of your sins. His blood covers your sin. And, he, and you are now indwelled by God's spirit. And you're given a fresh start. And I don't know of anybody that couldn't use a fresh start. And we as a church would be honored to come alongside of you and to help you in your Christian journey and to help you grow in your knowledge of the Lord and what the Bible has to say about you and what God has to say about you and how he feels about you. Because when you find out how crazy God is about you, it changes your life forever. So you can pray that while I pray this prayer over this congregation. Bow your heads with me. Precious Lord, I thank you for your word as always. I thank you that there are situations and stories that apply to our daily life, even though it was thousands of years ago in totally different cultures. The principles are all the same, and we can learn from each and every one of them. And Father, as we've talked about generosity today, I, I pray that your spirit would pierce our hearts, that our desire, every one of us, would be that we would want to be a generous people. That giving would just be a hallmark of who we are as a follower of Christ. That we would no longer live in the fear, wondering if uh, we're going to have enough, but that we would walk out in boldness and take you at your word and understand that when we do give, you give back to us. And it's a crazy how you do it, Lord. And I don't understand it, but I've seen it unfold so many times. And all I can do is sit back and go, you are awesome. Because you are so true. You are so true to your word. You are faithful, God, and we thank you for that. I pray that we would learn to understand your faithfulness in every aspect and area of our life, including this area of generosity. So, Father, I pray that you'll make us a generous people as we move forward, not just for the needs of this church, but for the needs that surround us in this community. Open our hearts to be givers in every sense of the word. And Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Let those be conversations that build people up and not tear them down. And Father, let us shine like bright lights in a very dark world. Let us shine so brightly that people will come up and say, what is it about you that is different? And then you open that door for, to allow us to share your goodness and our faith with them. And as I always pray, Lord, give us an opportunity. Give us a divine appointment, each one of us this week, where someone will come across our path and we have an opportunity to share your goodness with them. And at the least, invite them to church with us so that they can come to know you in a personal way. And Father, as we go our separate way, I pray that you would send us out in love, that we would love those who we come into contact with, even those who are difficult to love, just like you did, Father. You've called us to do that. You've called us to be lovers of people. And I pray that that will, that will just come flying out of us with, to everyone we meet. Keep us safe until we gather together again. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. Keep us safe of any sickness and disease so that we can come together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. And I ask these things in the precious, loving name of Jesus. 
Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.